0: In 1978, when Stanley Kubrick was in the final stages of pre-production on The Shining, he screened for the cast and crew an obscure film from an even more obscure director. Released in 1977 to withering reviews on a handful of screens before even fewer viewers, nonetheless, David Lynch's Eraserhead was the measure for the ominous mood and threatening tone Kubrick wanted for The Shining. Which is rather ironic, because if you pay close attention to the very start of Lynch's film, It is hard not to be struck by its similarity to an earlier Kubrick production.
1: I'm afraid, Dave. Dave. My mind is going.
0: I can feel it. Eraserhead was Lynch's first feature film, and opens with an image of Henry Spencer, played by Jack Nance, with his head slowly drifting horizontally up into the frame, all as if he were free from gravity. Behind Henry we see the depths of the universe, its mysteries dotted by quiet stars, and there in the centre of the frame sits a planet. The whole thing eerily echoes a climax to 2001, when we see the star child floating in space above the Earth. The similarities don't end there. Both films were met with widespread confusion from critics and audiences. But, at least in Kubrick's case, he had a studio behind him. For Lynch, he had great difficulty even securing a distributor. Rejected from the Cannes and New York Film Festivals, Lynch, who had spent five painstaking years making the film, was at his wit's end. Here he is in Interview in 1984 as part of the Guardian Lecture Series with Chris Autie, then critic for Time Out magazine.
1: Uh, My wife, Mary, forced me to take uh, the film to Filmex, to try to get it into Filmex. In Los Angeles? And it drove me down on the last day, at the last hour, and I popped it on the floor and I said, it's been rejected from here, it's been rejected from there, and you guys are probably going to reject it, but take a look at it. And he said, wait a minute, he said, uh, we don't care where it's been, and uh, we, we, you know, we are our own judge, and uh, don't worry about it. And it got in.
0: Lynch is a graduate of the American Film Institute. And while there is always a lot to be said for the financial acumen of filmmakers working within mainstream cinema, you have to be commercially fit or you perish, there is sometimes even more to be said about the importance of state-funded institutions. Their ideas are neither vetted nor tested by the marketplace, but are instead gathered and nurtured in the mind, and when unleashed on unsuspecting audiences, spin mainstream cinema into new directions. Here is a Razorhead cinematographer, Frederick Elms, speaking on the Criterion Collection Blu-ray special features, extolling the benefits of the AFI.
1: The AFI was a wonderful spot. It was an old mansion on a hill in Beverly Hills. The
0: AFI was good enough to give us just enough equipment and lights that we could use, and it was ours. It was our space, our sets, our lighting equipment, and they were very supportive. They really made it happen for us. And the best part was, once we were there, they kind of forgot about us. So we just kind of kept shooting away. A Eraserhead received its world premiere on March the 19th, 1977 at the Los Angeles International Film Exposition. Only, really, it didn't. A version of Eraserhead did. The reaction was so underwhelming, Lynch took that print back to the editing suite and cut over 30 minutes from its initial two-hour running time. Which, consistent with our subplot, brings Eraserhead a little bit closer to 2001. Shortly before Kubrick premiered his Space Odyssey, he also administered some radical changes, the most crucial of which was probably to the soundtrack, removing Alex Nord's commissioned score and instead using music from the likes of Strauss, Cacciaturian and Ligeti. For Eraserhead soundtrack, Lynch co-wrote an original tune with Peter Ivers, In Heaven. Then he took some Fats Waller organ music and had Henry play them on his old gramophone. And then Lynch relegated that music to the background, instead prioritising the harsh industrial soundscape he designed with Alan Splett. And that, I think, is key to understanding not only what Lynch was doing with the sound, but crucial in understanding how to watch and listen to his film. Ordinarily in film, sounds correspond directly to what we see. In other words, the sound and the image reinforce each other's medium. However, more sophisticated filmmakers split the grammar, so we don't always see what we hear, nor do we hear what we see. And in that differential, the filmmaker puts us inside the character's head. Henry plays Fats Waller for the very same reason you and I play any piece of music, because it moves us. Only in Henry's case, the music is drowned out by the sounds of his apartment. What would, in another film, be ambient, here is dominant, mapping out and mining the depths of Henry's emotional turmoil. Here is Lynch in 2014, recalling for The Paris of You, his collaborations with Alan Splatt, who designed the sounds on Lynch's first four films.
1: You know, um, there weren't any library. We didn't have any libraries, so everything had to be made. And so there's lots of recording, and then fiddling with the recording until it sounds right. And and there's a mood. And so this was Eraserhead was an industrial uh, world, and interior sounds, all kinds of different things,
0: and mood. Lynch didn't set out to be a filmmaker. It appears instead that fate drew him from his first love, painting, to the bigger canvas of cinema. Here he is from the same Chris Oti interview explaining how he got his first big commission.
1: I would make these paintings and I would sort of hear a, a sound or something that went with them, or I'd want there to be some sort of uh, movement, there seemed to be a bit more of a, of a story you know, behind them. And that's when, uh, for an experimental painting and sculpture contest, I made uh, this uh, one minute film. And after I finished it, I thought this would be the last film I would ever do, because I uh. said it's much too expensive. But a millionaire saw this show and commissioned me to build a moving painting, he called it, a moving painting for his house.
0: If you have not yet experienced a razor's head experimentation, I think your response will be tempered largely by how old you are. There is something intrinsically rewarding, if not categorically imperative, about watching avant-garde films as a teenager. Those years bring the need to assert identity, and in order for that to happen, we need to explore. So we step beyond the traditional narratives our parents either read to us or brought us to see. There, every action is qualified and reinforced for narrative clarity. And from those happy sunlit pastures, we step into the murky depths where stories don't have 3 act structures, character motivation is unclear, and sequences are replaced by non sequiturs. To the calcified adult whose life choices are defined by Netflix preferences, avant garde is anathema. But to the mercurial adolescent, it seems perfectly normal. The experimentation of the filmmaker is met by the exploration of the viewer. Here is Lynch two years ago, recalling his own childhood in the documentary The Art Life, directed by John Gwain, Rick Barnes, and Olivia neergard Holm.
1: Because I was always drawing, my mother did, this is the greatest thing she did, one one of the greatest things. She refused to ever have me have colouring books. She did not do that for my brother or my sister. Somehow, really beautiful thing came to her, that those would be restrictive and kill some kind of creativity.
0: I was 15 when I first experienced a razor head, and although I had never seen or heard anything like it before, for no reason other than my age, I accepted its surrealism as intriguing, if not normal. Now, Surrealism is a term that is so often misused, it is all but completely misunderstood. So let's get back to its origin. It is the mixture of two or more familiar but disparate elements, the incongruity of which is so great, when placed side by side, they both appear unfamiliar. In a word, uncanny. So for Eraserhead, it is not as if Lynch were trying to make the weird seem normal, but rather reveal the normal as unsettling. A world that only makes sense if you abandon reason because... Let's look at a Razorhead's landscape. Our devotion to industrialization is unhealthy. It alienates. We have so distanced ourselves from nature, the industrial landscape and sandscape seem natural. If we were to stop on the street, what would we hear? To get an indication of just how strange and unique Lynch’s film must have seemed to audiences back in 1977, think of another film that was released two months later. Where do you think you're going?: Well, I’m not going that way.: Star Wars may have looked like a sci-fi adventure, but really it was a throwback infused with reassuring nostalgia. If anything, the tale of Luke Skywalker, Ben Kenobi, and a quasi-religion called the Jedi was a much-needed restorative bam for an America that had been defeated in Vietnam and had just seen its president resign in disgrace. By contrast, and by any definition, a razorhead is anything but restorative. Has there ever been a less capable and more apprehensive lead character in all of cinema? Henry Spencer speaks so timidly, it is as if he opens his mouth only to let out some air. He says nothing with any degree of confidence and shuffles about with such worry Stress lines have practically burrowed into his forehead. He doesn't fit into his suit, the sleeves are too long, and his trousers are too short. Even his hair seems nervous, the tendrils reaching up to the sky as if looking for assurance. So, if so few people saw a razor head, how can it be deemed important? This by my side. Sunday Morning is the first track on the Velvet Underground and Nico's first album. Released on March 12, 1967, it was roundly ignored by the critics in public. Radio stations denied it airplay, and magazines refused to advertise it due to its lyrics. Burdened with those obstacles, it took eight weeks for the record to break into the Billboard charts. Peaking at 195 before leaving the listing just one month later. According to Lou Reed, the album barely sold 30,000 copies. But, as record producer Brian Eno famously told the Los Angeles Times in May 1982, everyone who bought one of those 30,000 copies started a band. Eno had founded Roxy Music and then gone on to produce three records with Talking Heads, six with U2 and 5 for David Bowie. In other words, it doesn't matter how few people saw a razorhead, just so long as those few people were the right people. Beyond Kubrick, Another was Mel Brooks, who then offered Lynch the opportunity to write and direct The Elephant Man. But beyond Lynch's own career, the influence of a Razorhead can be seen in one film that not only rewrote the sci-fi and body horror genres but spawned an entire franchise. Dallas? No. Take it easy, Dallas. When Ridley Scott went to direct Alien, he engaged with Swiss artist H.R. Geiger to help design the xenomorph. Geiger had seen and greatly admired a razor head, but, much to Lynch's annoyance, Geiger, shall we say, appropriated Lynch's design for the baby and turned it into a genocidal creature with two separate jaws of razor sharp teeth. As horrific as it was seeing John Hurt's chest burst open, if whatever came out of his abdomen was not even more terrifying, the entire film would have foundered right there and then. It was more terrifying, and the film's success launched Lieutenant Ellen Ripley as arguably the most iconic female character in all of cinema history. Much in the same way that many avant-garde films are enigmatic miracles, think of Maya Deren's Meshes in the Afternoon, Chris Marker's La Jetée, Stan Brakhage's Dogstar Man, or Jonas Mekas's Walden, A Razorhead is a very mysterious miracle. Just what it all means, Lynch has steadfastly refused to say. And that only makes it all the more fascinating. Here he is in 1979 being interviewed as part of a television production class at UCLA.
1: David Lynch has described his uh, film Eraserhead in this manner, a dream of dark and troubling things. And uh, would you like to expound on that a little? No. No?
0: (laughs) With Eraserhead, Lynch delivered one of the most astonishing debuts in all of cinema, which means it can stand alongside the likes of Strike Uncian on the Loo, Citizen Kane, Ossessione, Part Panchali, Shadows, Breathless, Badlands, Reservoir Dogs and Kronos. But what separates a Razorhead from all those films is its timelessness. If you knew very little about film, watching it today it would be very difficult to say just when it was made. The only absolute certainty would be that it came out after the arrival of synchronised sound in 1927. And because it was made in black and white, it is no easy thing to detect from the film stock to which era it belongs. Beyond that, it is a film so shorn of faddish technique that you could put it on a double bill with, say, Todd Browning's Freaks, Jean Cocteau's Orphe, Hiroshi Teshigahara's Woman of the Dunes, or George A. Romero's The Night of the Living Dead, Darren Aronofsky's Pie, or The Turin Horse, directed by Bella Tarr and Agnes Hrantischke. Over 40 years after its premiere, a razorhead is still as fresh and as anxious as it was the first day it screened.